Our message tonight is entitled Revelation's Final Appeal. And before we get into God's word, let's bow our heads for a word of prayer. Father in heaven, Lord, we want to thank you so much, Lord, for seeing us through another week. And Lord, we thank you so much that we can dig into your word together, Lord, as believers. And we pray, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would be here with us, that you would speak to us, and that you would draw us closer to you. Lord, help us to see that this message, this message of Revelation's final appeal, Lord, is an appeal to our hearts, Lord, that we might uh, enter into a deeper and more close relationship with you. Bless our time together, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. When Saddam Hussein was the president of Iraq, he had an idea that he was going to rebuild the ancient city of Babylon. He wanted to build his palace directly on top of the ruins of Nebuchadnezzar's ancient palace. The city of Baghdad uh, currently is about 60 miles southwest of, of, of Baghdad. Um, uh, sorry, of the city of Babylon, the ancient city of Babylon. It's about 60 miles southwest of, of Baghdad. Like Nebuchadnezzar, Saddam Hussein had his name imprinted on many of the bricks that he was going to use uh, to rebuild Babylon. But what Saddam Hussein didn't realize was that he was attempting the impossible. But you would not think that it would be impossible for him. Certainly, money shouldn't have been an issue for him as the leader of, of a very pre pretty w wealthy country. He didn't have an enemy that was preventing him from building that city. Geographically, this was no, should have been no challenge for him because it was in his own backyard. But he was a, attempting the impossible because the prophet Jeremiah had written around the year 600 B.C., these words, Jeremiah chapter 50, verse 3. For out of the north a nation comes up against her, which shall make her land desolate, and no one shall dwell therein. They shall move, they shall depart, both man and beast. So here Jeremiah was writing about Babylon, saying Babylon will never be rebuilt. It won't be inhabited. People will flee and they won't ever come back. And 10 verses later in Jeremiah chapter 50, verse 13, Jeremiah wrote this, She, that is Babylon, shall not be inhabited, but she shall be wholly desolate. And if you were to visit uh, Iraq today and go to the, the ruins of ancient Babylon, you would see that this prophecy still is true. It is not rebuilt to this day. Ancient Babylon was a mighty kingdom that conquered Israel. We've looked at prof the prophecy in Daniel chapter 2 in our very first study of unlocking prophecy. We saw that, uh, that, that Babylon came and destroyed Jerusalem and, and took many of the young people, some of the brightest young people with them to Babylon, including Daniel. We also read in the book of Revelation that Babylon is going to come back again. Now, how do we understand this, friends? Jeremiah said that Babylon would not be rebuilt, but Revelation talks about an end-time Babylon. So what, what is it talking about that? Well, we read in Revelation chapter 14, 8, it says, And another angel followed, saying, Babylon is fallen, is fallen, that great city, because she has made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. So it seems that Babylon is back in these last days, but how can that be so? Remember, friends, that John the Revelator wrote the Old Testament scriptures. Sorry, he, he, wrote, he wrote the book of Revelation and often quoted from the Old Testament scriptures. And um, so the word that he used there in Babylon, uh, his readers would have recognized that word because they were very familiar with the Old Testament scriptures. And they would have understood exactly the history of Babylon, and especially as it related to God's people, the Jews. So in, in the Bible, we read also about the fall of Babylon. And it's important for us to understand the fall of Babylon and what took place there, because we see in Revelation chapter 14 that Babylon once again is fallen, it says. So let's look at this here tonight. Uh, the background is this. Tensions were high between the Medo-Persian Empire and the Babylonians, and it came to a head one night. As the Babylonian king Belshazzar was hosting a party there in his palace, let's take a look here at the story in Daniel chapter 5. And if you'd like to open up your Bibles, you're more than welcome to. We'll be in Daniel chapter 5 for a little while here tonight. 
Daniel chapter 5, verse 1 says, Belshazzar, the king, made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in the presence of, a th of the thousand. While he tasted the wine, Belshazzar gave the command to bring the gold and silver vessels. While he, while he tasted the wine, Belshazzar gave the command to bring the gold and silver vessels which his father Nebuchadnezzar had taken from the temple which had been in Jerusalem. So Nebuchadnezzar destroyed Jerusalem. We see that in Daniel chapter 1. And he killed a lot of people, but he brought back many of the finest young people with him to Babylon. And he also took many of the valuables from Jerusalem, which included the, um, the holy worship vessels that were used in the temple. And these were sacred to God. And they were used in the true worship of the God of heaven. Notice that he took these, the gold and silver vessels so that the king and his lords, his wives and his concubines might drink from them. Then it says, Then they brought the gold vessels that had been taken from the temple of the house of God, which had been in Jerusalem, and the king and his lords and his wives and his concubines drank from them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold, silver, bronze, and iron, wood, and stone. So here this is a very blasphemous act, friends. They're using uh, vessels that should have been used in the worship of the true God of heaven, but, but now they're drinking from it and they're praising the gods of wood and stone and, uh, and other such metals there. It continues, it says, In the same hour the fingers of a man's hand appeared and wrote opposite the lampstand on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace. And the king saw the part of the hand that wrote. So the Bible says that he was so terrified that his knees knocked together. <laughs> Imagine what that would have been like, friends. The, the leader of the most powerful nation at that time, um, terrified, absolutely terrified. So let's recap here. Holy vessels were used, and they were designed to be used in the worship of the God of heaven. But instead, he, he brought them out in Babylon and threw a big party and praised these false gods. So he used what was sacred, but he used it in a common or profane way. And when God, when God saw that he did this, God said, enough is enough. And the writing was on the wall for Belshazzar, quite literally. But no one at the party could understand this writing that was there on the wall. And uh, the king's mother said, well, there is someone in this kingdom that can interpret this. I know that there's someone that probably can. She remembered that Daniel had interpreted dreams for King Nebuchadnezzar. And much, much earlier, um, back when Daniel was a youth, he did that. Now Daniel was old, older, and uh, he was called. And uh, notice that Daniel was called to come. Daniel wasn't there at the party drinking it up with, with everybody else. He was faithful to the Lord. And so he was called to come to the party for a specific purpose. And here's what Daniel said in verse 18. It says, he said, O king, the most high God gave Nebuchadnezzar, your father, a kingdom and majesty, glory and honor. And because of the majesty that he gave him, all peoples, nations, and languages trembled and feared before him. Whomever he wished, he executed. Whomever he wished, he kept alive. Whomever he wished, he set up, and whomever he wished, he put down. But when his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened in pride, he was deposed from his kingly throne, and they took his glory from him. Verse 21, Then he was driven from the sons of men. His heart was made like the beasts, and his dwelling was with the wild donkeys. They fed him with the grass like oxen, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven, till he knew that the Most High God rules in the kingdom of men, and he appoints over it whomever he chooses. But you, his son Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, although you knew all this, and you have lifted yourself up against the Lord of heaven. We're having problems with the clicker here tonight. They have brought the vessels of his house before you, and you, your lords, your wives, and your concubines have drunk wine from them. And you have praised the gods of silver and gold, bronze and iron, wood and stone, which do not see or hear or know. And the God who holds the breath, who holds your breath in his hand and owns all your ways, you 
have not glorified. So God said, Belshazzar, I cannot hold you guiltless. He knew what he had done. He knew that these vessels were holy and should not be used for common purposes. He would have no doubt known Nebuchadnezzar's conversion story that took place. The book of Daniel is primarily a prophetic book, but it also is a book about salvation, how God loved even the most powerful ruler of the then known world and did all that he could to save him. And Nebuchadnezzar was probably uh, the person least expected to be saved, you know, as a pagan king of this large empire. And yet the book of Daniel talks about a God who loves even a scoundrel like Nebuchadnezzar, friends, and how he led Nebuchadnezzar to a place where he could be saved. Belshazzar would have been familiar with all of this, all this background, but, but yet he did not humble his heart. And the writing was on the wall. Here's what the writing said. Daniel, Daniel read it. Mine, mine tekel upharsin. Then he said, this is the interpretation of each word. Mine. God has numbered your kingdom and finished it. Tekel. You have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. In other words, he was judged. And he didn't end up on the right side of the judgments. Then Perez. Your kingdom has been divided and given to the Medes and Persians. In other words, Belshazzar, it's over for you, and it's over for your kingdom. It's, it's, it's finished. Then the Bible says in Daniel 5.30 that that very night, Belshazzar, king of the Chaldeans, was slain. And Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. So here we see Babylon had fallen. Literal Babylon had fallen. And what caused the downfall of Babylon? Well, they took the holy vessels of God... Those that they knew were used in the worship of the true God, and they used them for common purposes. They took what was designed to be holy, and they willfully used it in a most unholy way. And as literal Babylon fell, so spiritual Babylon has fallen. And when we come to the book of Revelation, we see a clear parallel here. Revelation 14.7 says, that an angel speaks, saying, Fear God and give glory to him, for the hour of his judgment has come, and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. So here we see right here in the first angel's message that there is a call to worship God as the creator. It says, Worship him who made. It's a call, it's a call to remember to keep the Sabbath, which is a memorial of creation. As a matter of fact, in verse, verse 7 is actually a direct quote from the fourth commandment found in Exodus chapter 20, verse 11. Notice verse 7 says, Worship him who made heaven and earth and the sea. Exodus 20 says, The Lord made the heavens and the earth and the sea. So you see, it's like a direct quote from the fourth commandment. So when, any, so when anybody says, I don't see the fourth commandment anywhere in the New Testament, well, friends, it's, it's mentioned quite a bit, actually, in the New Testament. Uh, but here is a, also a direct quote right here in the book of Revelation in, finals, in God's final message to the world. God wants people to remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. And this message is a message that will go to everybody on the planet. Everyone will eventually hear the three angels' messages. And just like Belshazzar just like he knew that those vessels were holy, the world will know at the end of time that God's Sabbath day is holy. And then when people have had the opportunity to know and understand this, then the message will be that Babylon has fallen. Now I'd like to introduce to you two women in the book of Revelation. God draws a fascinating parallel between these two. The first one is seen in Revelation chapter 12, verse 1, which says, Now a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a garland of twelve stars. Now notice what a woman represents in Bible prophecy. Through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the prophet Jeremiah wrote this. In Jeremiah 6, 2, he said, I have likened the daughter of Zion to a lovely and delicate woman. So who is Zion? Well, let's compare scripture with scripture. Through Isaiah, God said this. He said, say to Zion, you are my people. So we can see from these texts, friends, that God 
used a virtuous woman to describe his true people. And the Apostle Paul also uses the same terminology in the New Testament to describe the Corinthian church. In 2 Corinthians 11.2, he says, For I am jealous for you with godly jealousy, for I have betrothed you to one husband, that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. So here Paul also presents the church as uh, Christ's bride. So in Bible prophecy, a woman symbolically represents a church. In Revelation 12, it's a pure woman representing a pure church. And we'll take a look at that in our second presentation. Tonight, we're going to focus in our first presentation on the, the, the woman in Revelation chapter 17. And she's anything but pure, the Bible says. Let's start in Revelation chapter 17, verse 1. It says, Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and talked with me, saying, to me, come, I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed fornication, and the inhabitants of the earth were made drunk with the wine of her fornication. So he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast, which was full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet, adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, having in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the filthiness of her fornication. And on her forehead a name was written, Mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and of the abominations of the earth. I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And when I saw her, I marveled with great amazement. Now, who is this harlot woman? Well, it's, uh, the, same, it's the same power that's described in Daniel, and that says that Daniel chapter 8, it says that this little horn power would cast truth to the ground. It's the same power as this little horn. It's uh, the same power that persecuted God's people during the Dark Ages. Virtually all of the great Protestant reformers believed that this harlot woman referred to the papacy. This power was a persecuting power. It became drunk with the, with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And we have looked already in our presentations that the Roman church was a persecuting power. It persecuted the church and they went into the wilderness. This woman is an impure church system which was corrupted during the Dark Ages. And she's called, notice she's called Babylon the Great, the mother of of harlots and the abominations of the earth. Now, the question is, is where did this word Babylon first come from? Well, it came, it goes all the way back to the Tower of Babel. And we know what happened at the Tower of Babel. Uh, they wanted to make a name for themselves. They wanted to build a tower that would reach to heaven in defiance of the true God. And so God confused the languages at Babel. Now, the word Babylon that we read in the book of Revelation comes from that same word Babel, which means confusion. And so in the Babylon, at the, at the end of time, it would, we would see spiritual confusion. Now, this isn't a literal nation that's going to rise up in the book of Revelation. It's something spiritual that's taking place. And I think that it's clear that much of the Christian world is in spiritual confusion in our day today. I mean, when, especially when we look at some of the key subjects uh, that are vital for these last days, much of the, the Christian world is in confusion. Let's consider Revelation chapter 17, verse 2. It's, it tells us that Babylon made the world drunk with the wine of her fornication. Now, in prophecy, wine represents false doctrine. And it's the doctrines of Babylon that have confused the world and made the world drunk on teachings that did not originate in God's word. Through these false teachings, Satan is doing all that he can to lead people away from God and to lead people away from the Bible. That's what happens when people hear false doctrine. It, it makes them, it repulses them and says, if that's what God's like, then I don't want to have anything to do with God. That's what false doctrine does, friends. And so it's so important for us to be able to share God's word, amen, and have all of our beliefs based on God's word so that we can accurately reflect God's love to the world around us. Now in verse 5 here, notice it says that Babylon is called the mother of harlots. 
That means that she has daughters. If she's a mother, she has to have some offspring, right? And remember that in prophecy, a woman represents a church. So these daughters are other churches, uh, other churches, yes. There's a mo- so there's a mother church whose, um, whose colors are purple and scarlet. Then there are daughter churches. So let's consider some of the teachings that come from the mother church and that have made their way into Christianity. And as we do, we will see that many of these uh, beliefs were also um, taught and shared during the time of ancient Babylon, interestingly enough. So we see that there are false ideas about what happens when a person dies. We've looked at that in our seminar already. Billions of people believe in this doctrine of the immortal soul. But as we saw in our presentations, that nowhere in the Bible does it say immortal soul. In fact, the Bible uses the, the phrase soul over 1,500 times and never is the word immortal attached to it. We saw when we talked about the mystery of death that when you die, you simply do what? You sleep. You sleep in the grave. But we saw that this idea that, that, one per, that a person lives on forever and ever came from a lie way back in the Garden of Eden. Back in Genesis chapter 3, 4, um, Satan said to Eve, he said, you will not surely die. And that's what he's been saying to humanity ever since, that when you die, you, you don't really die. You, you'll live on and on forever and ever. We see that ancient Babylon also adopted this idea of the immortality of the soul straight from the devil's playbook. And Babylon was an influential power that spread this idea. Look at what the Bible says here in Ezekiel chapter 8, verses 13 and 14. And he said to me, turn again, and you will see greater abominations that, are, that, that they are doing. So he brought me to the door of the north gate of the Lord's house, and to my dismay, women were sitting there weeping for Tammuz. Now who was Tammuz? Well, she was the god of vegetation. The Babylonians believed that, that when winter came and it darkened the sky, and there were these long nights like we're starting to experience now, that Tammuz had died. But in the spring, when the sun was out longer, there would be a resurrection. And, um, and some of God's people, the Jews, had actually started to believe this, and they were weeping for Tammuz. And uh, they got this idea straight from, from Babylon. Um, that's why Ezekiel describes them as weeping for Tammuz there. It says, this false idea that the dead live on and that the soul is immortal uh, slipped into the Old Testament church directly from paganism. But the Bible is very clear on this, and we've looked at numerous texts when we had this presentation on the mystery of death, but Ecclesiastes chapter 9-5 says that the living know that they will die, but the dead know how much? Nothing. Psalm 115-17 says, the dead do not praise the Lord, nor any who go down to silence. Friends, why do not, why did the dead not praise the Lord? Because they're simply sleeping. <laughs> they're waiting for the resurrection of life or they're re- waiting for the resurrection of condemnation. We saw that there are two resurrections. That's what Jesus believed and that's what the apostles believed and that's what the early church believed. Look at what Justin Martyr said. He was one of the early church fathers. He even agreed with this. He said, if you have fallen in with some who are called Christians, but who do not admit this, that is the truth about the resurrection, and venture to blaspheme the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob, who say there is no resurrection of the dead and that their souls, when they die, are taken to heaven, do not imagine that they are Christians. Pretty strong language coming from Justin Martyr. A Protestant preacher nearly a hundred years ago by the name of Amos Phelps uh, preached a sermon and he said this. He said, this doctrine of the immortal soul can be traced through the muddy channels of a corrupted Christianity, a perverted Judaism, a pagan philosophy, a superstitious idolatry, to the great instigator of mischief in the Garden of Eden. The Protestants borrowed it from the Catholics. The Catholics got it from who? From the Pharisees, the Pharisees got it from the pagans, and the pagans got it from the old serpent who first preached the doctrine amid the lowly boughs of paradise to an audience all too willing to hear it and heed the new and fascinating theology, you shall not surely die. 
I think that's a very accurate portrayal of where this idea of the uh, doctrine of the immor, uh, immortal soul came from. So this is one of the false doctrines that came into the church, and it continues to be taught by the mother church as well as her daughters. And there is confusion on this topic, so much so to the point that people even pray to the dead, right? They pray to the saints, uh, asking that the saints would intercede for them. And this is simply not found in the Bible, friends, that, that kind of teaching. And there wouldn't be confusion on this topic if people simply studied God's word, amen? They studied it closely and looked at all the texts, they would see that death is but a sleep. We see also that ancient Babylon was the center of sun worship at the time. All worship, all sun worship came through varying pagan uh, channels. And let's look at this uh, passage here in the book of Ezekiel that shows how sun worship even came into God's Old Testament church. Ezekiel 8 verse 16 says, So he brought me into the inner court of the Lord's house. And there at the door of the temple of the Lord, between the porch and the altar, were about 25 men with their backs toward the temple of the Lord and their faces toward the east. And they were worshiping what? They were worshiping the sun. They weren't worshiping God. They were worshiping the sun toward the east. Now, friends, when people, when the Israelites normally came to the temple, who were they coming to the temple to worship? God, right? They were coming to worship the Lord, the God of heaven. But in this instance, when people came to the temple, they had their backs turned, they had their faces turned toward the sun. But, but uh, and this is just terrible, friends, just showing the, how idolatry was coming into the church, basically. They were adopting sun worship. Sadly, the Jews were influenced by the surrounding communities, by the pagan nations around them. And many turned to idols, even to worshiping the sun. And that's how sun worship crept into the Old Testament church. James Fraser describes how impeded sun worship was in the Babylonian culture. He said, in ancient Babylonia, the sun, worshiped. The sun was worshipped from immemorial antiquity. In other words, this practice goes way, way back, friends. And sadly, sun worship also crept into the church as we've looked at. Dr. Alexander Hislop says, to, to conciliate the pagans to nominal Christianity, Rome pursuing its usual course took measures to get the Christian and pagan festivals amalgamated, that is joined together, and to get paganism and Christianity now far sunk in idolatry in this as so many other things to do what? To shake hands, to get paganism and Christianity to shake hands. And Sunday became the vehicle to unite paganism as to Christianity. Our Catholic friends wrote about it in this way. They said in the Sunday Visitor, January 4, 1931, Christendom is indebted to the Catholic Church for the institution of Sunday as the Sabbath day. So there they admit that all of the daughter churches are indebted to them, the mother church, for the institution of Sunday as the Sabbath day. Here's what another Catholic apologist by the name of Carl Keating says in his book, Catholicism and Fundamentalism, page 38. He says, fundamentalists meet for worship on Sunday, yet there is no evidence in the Bible that, in, that corporate worship was to be made on Sundays. The Jewish Sabbath, or day of rest, was of course Saturday. It was the Catholic Church that decided Sunday should be the day of worship for Christians in honor of the resurrection. Now, friends, I'm not trying to be critical here. This is simply a matter of historical record of what happened. It was, a church that, it was the church that brought this into Christianity, not Jesus. Not the disciples, but the Church of Rome brought this practice in. In fact, Cardinal Gibbons wrote this. He said, reason and sense demand the acceptance of one or the other of these two alternatives. Either Protestantism and the keeping holy of Saturday, or Catholicism and the keeping holy of Sunday. Compromise is impossible. So the cardinal basically said, you'll, you'll either be a Protestant and observe the Seventh-day Sabbath, or be a Catholic and observe Sunday. So the choice is between tradition or the Bible. 
The teaching that Sunday somehow replaced the Sabbath of God is a teaching that comes from Babylon, this false system of spirituality. And the churches that are teaching this error together with the mother church constitute what the Bible calls Babylon. In Exodus chapter 20, verse 8, we see God saying, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. But then we see in the last days that the whole world will be wandering after the beast power of Revelation chapter 13, which is the papacy. It says, All the world marveled and followed the beast. Look how one Catholic priest described the world following after the mother church. He wrote, But since Saturday, not Sunday, is specified in the Bible, isn't it curious that non-Catholics who profess to take their religion directly from the Bible and not from the church observe Sunday instead of Saturday? Yes, of course it is inconsistent, but the change was made about 1500, sorry, 15 centuries before Protestantism was born. They have continued to observe custom even though it rests upon the authority of the church and not upon an explicit text in the Bible. That observance remains the reminder of the mother church from which all non-Catholic sects broke away. Like a boy running from his mother but still carrying in his pocket a picture of his mother or a lock of her hair. The same author also wrote this about transubstantiation in the Eucharist, which the Catholic Church practices. He said, When the priest announces the tremendous words of consecration, he reaches up into the heavens, brings Christ down from his throne, and places, places him upon our altar to be offered again as the victim for the sins of man. It is a power greater than that of saints and angels, greater than that of the seraphim and cherubim. Indeed, it is greater than even the power of the Virgin Mary. While the Blessed Virgin was the human agency by which Christ became incarnate a single time, the priest brings Christ down from heaven and renders him present on our altar as an eternal victim for the sins of man, not once, but a thousand times. The priest speaks, and lo, Christ, the eternal, omnipotent God, bows his head in humble obedience to the priest's command. Mercy. I don't know how to explain this better than just admitting that this is pure blasphemy, friends. This is pure blasphemy. That's the claim that's made, though, by the Mother Church, who desires all people to follow its teachings. But the plan of God is to call people out of Babylon, to call people out of spiritual confusion. And he's done it before. He called, um, he called his people out of ancient Babylon, um, and even though they spent many years there. But God did not want them to spend, uh, he didn't want them to be there forever. His plan was to call them out so that they would be free to worship God in spirit and in truth. His plan was to call them out so that they could go back home and where, where God wanted them to be in Jerusalem. And they could be safe and they could grow in the grace of God and they could lean on the word of God. God wanted to call them out of Babylon so that they would not have to be surrounded by pagan influences that were, that were really harming them, that were really bringing them down spiritually. He wanted to call his people out. So God called them out of ancient Babylon and many of his people came out of Babylon. It would have been madness for them to stay there because it wasn't a safe place. It wasn't a safe environment for them to be spiritually. Did they have friends in Babylon? Of course they did. Did they worship there? Of course they worshiped there. What about their livelihood? Yes, it was all in Babylon. There were reasons enough for them to decide that they might want to stay there. Maybe some of them thought that it was a nice place. They had, you know, they had that option. But it wasn't God's will for them to stay there. And it wasn't a safe place for them spiritually. And so God called them out of Babylon. But unfortunately, not everyone came out. Some decided that they would stay in Babylon. And it's hard to believe that some would have decided to stay when God was setting them free. God was calling them to come back home rather than, rather than stay there and, and suffer spiritually. But friends, the Bible tells us that at the end of time, the same thing is going to happen. 
There's a call that's made in Revelation 14, verse 8, that says, Babylon is fallen, is fallen, that great city. And so God calls his people to come out in these last days. Now I want to show you why, from a biblical point of view, it isn't safe to remain in Babylon. I understand that it, it, how difficult it can be sometimes to, to confront subjects like this. It's not always easy to talk about it. But I also know that God wants to grow each of us. Amen? God has us all on a journey, and he's leading us and guiding us and, and helping us to be where he wants us to be. Let's look at what it says in Revelation chapter 18, verse 1. It says, After these things I, John, saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was illuminated with his glory. And he cried mightily with a loud voice, saying, Babylon the great is fallen, is fallen, and has become a dwelling place of demons, a prison for every foul spirit, and a cage for every unclean and hated bird. Friends, Babylon is fallen because it has drifted away from God's holy word. It's adopted the teachings of men, the traditions of men, rather than the teachings of God. It continues, it says, For all the nations have drunk of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. The kings of the earth have committed fornication with her, and the merchants of the earth have become rich through the abundance of her luxury. That's really strong language, isn't it, friends? God doesn't say this about just any old power in, in the Bible, but he's saying this about the end-time Babylon. He's telling us why it's so dangerous to stay in Babylon. But notice what he says in verse 4. Jesus says this, and I heard, uh, John writes, he, he says, and I heard another voice from heaven saying, come out of her, my people, lest you share in her sins, lest you receive of her plagues. So here is a very definite call for, from God to his people for them to come out of Babylon. God says, if you don't, you will share in her sins and you will receive of her plagues. And you guys remember when we talked about the seven last plagues? Are those desirable things? No, none of us want to receive the seven last plagues. So God is calling his people to come out. And look who the call is for. It says, my people. God has his people in Babylon. Amen? He has his people in, in spiritual uh, confusion, in systems of worship that are in spiritual confusion. But God is calling them out at this time. In fact, I, be, I believe that probably the majority of God's people are, are in Babylon at this time. But God is calling and reaching them. He says to honest seekers of truth, my people, come out. Don't stay there. Don't stay in Babylon, but come out. God says to his people, you're mine. I know you. I know you love me and I want to grow you, so come out. Follow me. And he says that to his people today. He says, you love me. You're doing well. And now God says, I want to keep you. I want to help get you ready. I want to continue getting you ready for the coming my coming. Because when Jesus comes back, the saved will be those that have been keeping the commandments of God. The saved will be those, when Jesus comes back, who are not confused by the false teachings of Babylon. They will not be deceived by the beast power at the end of time. God says, if that's the case, if you want to stand up and step forward, come out of her, my people. So God's people will hear his voice in these last days, and they will come forward. And they'll grow in their relationship with God. And they'll, develop, uh, they'll be developed in their understanding of Scripture. And they will continue to grow in their practice of the teachings of God's Word. Now what happens often is that, people, is that there are people who will say, Well, I see what the Bible says. I see where maybe I don't understand all the things like I might want to. And I see where my church falls short. So what I'm going to do now is I'm going to go back and take what I've learned and I'm going to reform my church. I will change my church from the inside out. And friends, that is a noble thought. It is a noble thought. But that is not what God asks you to do. God asks you to come out of a fallen system of worship. Should you witness to your friends? Absolutely, you should witness to your friends. You should share the new truths that God has been sharing with you, the things that you've been learning from God's word. But the powerful example is in stepping forward and growing in the grace of God. It's standing on the platform of God's word. People will notice when you take a stand. 
There's no power in an example that says, I know better, but I'm not going to do anything about it. There's no power in that, friends. There's no testimony in that. You can't reform a church that has refused to be reformed already. Even Jesus himself could not change the church of his day. Even Jesus had to stand up and he had to, sta- and he had to step forward and say, I'm moving on, I'm moving on with the word of God and we will continue to, to reject superstition. We're going to reject the traditions of men. And so God calls us now and he says, come out of her, my people. Notice it's God who says this, friends. It's not me just saying this is, this is what the word of God says. I'm just a feeble vessel trying to relay the message that God has given in scripture. What we, what we read happens, we read what happens to those who stay in Babylon. The Bible says that they partake of her sins and they receive of her plagues. What we know for sure, friends, is that the fact that many of God's people haven't known certain things. It doesn't mean that just because they don't know, it doesn't mean that they're not God's people. You can't look at someone from another church and say, well, that person believes differently from me, so they are less of a Christian than me. We cannot do that, friends. In fact, if you think that, you probably already demonstrated that the opposite is true. There's no hierarchy here at all. There should be no one saying, well, I'm better than so-and-so because I worship on the Sabbath and they worship on Sunday. There should be no, no talk like that, friends. Because God has said, come out of her, my people. Which means that he has many people out there that have never heard the message of the Sabbath. And he's calling them to understand that. He's calling them to study it out. They just didn't know. They just don't, they didn't understand it fully. Many people didn't know that the dead are simply sleeping. Many thought that the, their loved ones were there in heaven. But the Bible clearly teaches that the dead know nothing. They're just resting in the grave until Christ comes. Many people didn't know that, the, that we're living in the judgment hour and that our bodies are the temple in which the Holy Spirit desires to dwell. But now we know, and, and, and God asks us to step out and to make lifestyle changes, to glorify God in all that we do. And so God says, come out of her, my people. Come out of Babylon. Don't receive of her plagues. Don't transgress when it comes to the commandments. Don't follow the beast's power in these last days. Don't receive the mark of the beasts. It's God's message to us. He says, come out of her, my people. And he calls us my people, his people. We are God's people, friends. And the the decision you make to stand on the word of God alone is the best decision that you can ever make. And I want to encourage you as you take steps forward with God, I encourage you to stand on God's word. Don't stand on the traditions of men, but stand on God's word. Don't take steps backwards either. God called a man named Lot out of the cities, the wicked cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. You can read about that in Genesis chapter 19. God said to him, Lot, get your family out of these wicked cities and don't look back. But Mrs. Lot looked back and she became a pillar of salt, the Bible says. For Lot's wife, life Life was in looking forward, but she had left her heart in Sodom and she looked back. She looked back because that's where her heart really was. She wanted to be there. And friends, you don't want to make that mistake of leaving your heart where God is calling you from. God called Lot and his wife, yet she turned back and became a pillar of salt. One day on Mount Carmel, the prophet Elijah proposed a certain test. You're probably familiar with the story. There was a question that needed to be resolved. Whose God was the true God? The prophets of Baal or the true God of heaven? Elijah wanted the world to see that the creator God was the true God. And so he proposed a test to the prophets of Baal. He said, set up an altar and offer a sacrifice and pray to your gods and see if your God will answer. The God uh, who answers by fire, he is the true God. And he said, well, once you're done, it will be my turn. And the God who answers by fire, we will know is the true God. Okay. So the prophets of Baal agreed to that. They erected an altar. They sacrificed an animal. 
They placed the animal out there on the wood and they cried out to Baal. The Bible says that they even cut themselves trying to get the attention of Baal, hoping that he would hear them, hoping that maybe they could convince him to send fire upon their offerings, but it didn't happen. Then Elijah got down and he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been broken down. And he knelt down and he prayed. And praise God, friends, God answered Elijah's prayer. And fire came down from God and devoured that sacrifice. It devoured the water. It burned up the sacrifice and even burned up the stones. The God, the God, of, heaven, the God of heaven demonstrated in this instance that he is the true God of heaven. So what happened next? Well, Elijah gathered the people together and he spoke to them and he said, How long will you falter between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And what we hear tonight is like Elijah's message on the top of Mount Carmel. How long will we, uh, how long will we falter between two opinions? How long will we flip-flop between serving God and serving tradition? If God is God, then let's purpose to honor him and worship him in spirit and in truth, like the Bible says. But if the God of heaven is not God, then why play the game? Why bother with religion at all? If Baal is God, let's just embrace Baal and pretend that there's no other way of doing things. But really what God might say, friends, is if God is God, then we should follow the teachings of God in his holy word. Amen? If tradition is the way to God, then let's just admit that we're following tradition and not the Bible. Let's make up our minds as to what will be our authority. How long will we falter between two opinions? You see, in Elijah's day, people hadn't forsaken God altogether. They had succeeded in mixing together truth with error. That's what the devil does, right? He mixes truth with error. That's his most effective means at deceiving people. And so King Ahab's wife, wicked Jezebel, introduced Baal worship into Israel. First, it came into the royal household. Then it started to creep down and mix up among the Jewish society. So these people would not tell you that there was no God, but they were mixing together the worship of the true God and the worship of Baal. There was a blend that had taken place. And perhaps that is what's happened with Christianity today. Without our knowledge, and actually without us being the ones necessarily responsible for it, Maybe what we see is this blending. But friends, we want to turn towards the true God of heaven. Amen? We want to hold the Bible in our hands and we want to cling to Jesus in these last days. But we have allowed tradition to come in so often. We've, we've clung to tradition, but we need to cling to God's word in these last days so that we don't find ourselves ultimately in places that we don't intend to be spiritually. There's a fascinating story that's told of a woman who was 62 years old from Great Britain. She had every intention of spending a wonderful vacation in Granada, Spain. She'd been looking forward to this trip for quite some time and she got on the plane and she thought that she was flying to Granada, or so she thought. She said to the lady next to her, I cannot wait to get to Spain. And the lady said, Spain? You're on the wrong plane if you're trying to get to Spain. She contacted the flight attendant and, and, and said, this lady thinks she's going to Spain. And there were some smiles that took place there and a little bit of embarrassment. I'm sure we would have all been embarrassed in a situation like this. But, but she was embarrassed because she wasn't going to Granada in Spain at all. She was actually headed to Granada in the Caribbean. She was sincere. She was sincere. She was excitedly looking forward to a wonderful vacation, but she was headed in the wrong direction. And you know what? As soon as she got to, uh, to Granada, <laughs> you know what she did? She went straight to the, to the airline and, and got everything all worked out, and she got on a plane and went towards Granada <laughs> as quickly as possible. <laughs> In her sincerity, she thought she was going to Granada, but she was really going to Granada. I believe, friends, that there are a lot of sincere believers in Jesus out there who think that they're, heading, that they're headed for Granada. 
But because of the traditions that have slept, slipped into the Christian churches, they've discovered that they're actually headed towards Granada. So what will we do about that? That's the question. That's the question. Jesus gives us the gracious invitation. He says, come out of her, my people. Jesus also said this in John 10, 14. He said, I am the good shepherd, and I know my sheep, and am known by my own. Friends, Jesus is the good shepherd, and he knows his sheep, which means that he knows each and every one of you personally. Amen? He knows the number of hairs that are on your head. He knows everything about you. He knows what your journey has been like in life. He knows the, the depths of sin that you've been in. And friends, he can pull us out of that. Amen? He can make us new creatures, the Bible says. Then Jesus also said this in John 10, 27, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. Are you hearing the voice of Jesus tonight? Have you heard the voice of Jesus in our meetings thus far? Jesus is saying to us in Revelation 18, Come out of her, my people. God wants to call us out of Babylon. And maybe there are some of us here that, that think that we're not in Babylon. But friends, maybe there is too much Babylon in us. Maybe there is too much Babylon in us. And God wants to call that out of us as well. Remember where God is attempting to guide his people. Revelation chapter 14 verse 12 describes God's people here in the last days by saying, Here is the patience of the saints. Here are those who keep the commandments of God in the faith of Jesus. Friends, God wants every one of us to be in this number in the last days. Amen? We're so close to the finish line. We're getting nearer and nearer to the return of Jesus. And God wants you and I to be among that number that hear those words, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Is that your desire, friends, when Jesus comes to hear that, Well done, good faithful, good and faithful servant? Amen. Let's pray as we close here this, morning, this evening. Father in heaven, Lord, we want to thank you so much, Lord, that you call us your people. And Lord, you have many people out there, Lord, that are in Babylon right now. And Lord, you're calling them out. Lord, you want this message of the three angels to go to the whole world, Lord, to illuminate the earth with your glory, Lord, to give a more clear revelation of your character. Lord, we've seen that, that Satan has spread lies about you, lies that you want to burn people forever and ever. He spread lies, Lord, that, that uh, the dead don't really die, Lord, that they live on forever and ever. But Lord, we've seen from your word that the dead simply sleep. Lord, we've seen that you're a fair God and, and that 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 hell does not last for all eternity, Lord, but that the results are eternal. And so, Lord, we, we have seen these things, Lord, and it has given us a clear picture of who you are. It's helped us to see that you are a God of love, as it says in 1 John 4, 8. And Lord, we pray that you would help us to share this message with others, Lord. I pray, Lord, that you would help us, Lord, to step out of Babylon, Lord. And, and I pray, Lord, that you would take Babylon out of us, Lord. I know so often the world tries to attract us with its with its temptations, Lord, with, with all these material possessions, all these things, Lord, claim that they can fill our lives up. But, Lord, truly the only thing that can really fill us up is you. So, Lord, we, we pray, Lord, that you would fill us even now. Help us to stand for you in these last days, Lord, that we would not receive the mark of the beast, Lord, that we would, that we would stand firm with your people in these last days, Lord, is our prayer. And we ask and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.